Welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars, and today is Saturday, July 15th, 2023. The topic of episode 117 has been a news item as of late. You may have heard the controversy surrounding the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known colloquially as the Mormon Church that it has been found to be hoarding anywhere between $100 billion and $150 billion. We will talk about the accusations lobbied against the church and who is doing it. We will talk about the outcome or the present outcome of that issue. And we will talk about the tax exempt status of churches and whether or not they're allowed to make investments and inquire wealth, or should, should they even be? <clears throat> I'm not an attorney, nor am I a tax expert, especially when it comes to churches, but I've done my research. I've done some reading up on this subject. I've also spoken to a lawyer friend of mine who is not LDS in order to try to find an impartial view on what a church would be doing with $100 billion or more. The whistleblower in this case is David A. Nielsen, who was a former or is a former portfolio manager for Ensign Peak Advisors, Ensign Peak Advisors, which is the church's investment firm which I also might refer to as Ensign. <clears throat> Nielsen filed a complaint in late 2019 with the IRS, accusing the church of amassing a $100 billion reserve fund intended for, but never spent on, charity in potential violation of tax laws. To date, the IRS has never taken any public action on the complaint. We will shortly discuss the reasons why. Not content with the IRS's dismissal, Nielsen took his case to the U.S. Senate earlier this year. Nielsen urged the Senate Finance Committee to investigate the faith's financial practices and shared what he said was, I quote, evidence of false statements, systematic accounting fraud, close quote, and violations of tax laws and other federal statutes. He has asserted, among other things, that his former employer had dodged more than $20 billion in taxes, as well as another $2 billion in fines. Weeks after Nielsen lobbied the Senate, the church and Ensign Peak Advisors, again, that's the church's investment firm, settled with the U.S. Securities and, and, and Exchange Commission, agreeing to pay $5 million in penalties for failing to properly disclose past stock holdings and going to <clears throat> what regulators call great lengths 
to deliberately obscure the breadth and the depth of the church's investment portfolio. We will find out why that was too. Okay, the church did not respond to a Forbes inquiry for comment, although high-ranking members of the church individually had previously said the investment portfolio in question was intended for a rainy day account. And if you know anything about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they are all about saving for a rainy day. So this sounds plausible. According to Nielsen, however, none of that money had been spent for, for 20 years and he seeks to strip Ensign of its ta tax-exempt status because he sees it as a branch of a religious organization because the church hadn't used the money on charitable works. Nielsen said the firm's leader had instead suggested to staff that the church intended to keep the money for, I quote, the second coming of Christ, close quote, which according to Mormon teachings will be marked by war. Roger Clark, the head of Ensign, told the Wall Street Journal that his comments were misinterpreted. The church itself denied any tax violations in interviews with the Wall Street Journal. The LDS Church and Ensign Peak subsequently made themselves available to work with officials. They opened all the books and sat with them. <clears throat> while Nielsen complaints, Nielsen's complaint, while his complaint claims Ensign President Roger Clark had said the fund would be used should the second coming of Christ occur, the Post reported that the presiding bishop of the church, Bishop, I'm going to mess up this name, I'm sorry, Bishop Gerald Cause, who oversees church, church finances, Bishop Cause gave a March 2018 speech in which he connected, I quote, the prophecies of the last days to setting aside some, <clears throat> again a quote, Revenues each year to prepare for any possible future needs. He went on to say, we have a vision of the church that is, can I use the word grandiose? Cause uh, also oversees the faith's real estate and charitable operations. And he said this in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. He said, because we believe the gospel has to be taken to all the world. And so we see the size of the church, which was presently 17 million members as of that uh, interview. And so we see the church multiple times, the size of the church multiple times what it is now in the future. 
Given the church's deep reserves, Cauze said, Church President Russell M. Nelson can announce temples anywhere he believes is essential without worrying about costs. Quote, because he knows that there are reserves to maintain these temples for a long time, whatever happens in the world. Close quote. Indeed, Nielsen has announced 133 new temples, which is the faith's most sacred houses of worship. And since this 98-year-old retired heart surgeon became president over five years ago, he has been on this march toward building as many temples as he can. And 133 is 42% of the church's <clears throat> 315 existing or planned temples. Wall Street Journal adds that the Latter-day Saint leaders expect to build hundreds more. As for discrepancies in the books, Cause said, we recognize mistakes and we regret mistakes, reiterating that the church's money funds its religious, charitable, and educational efforts, and that it's not just being sat upon. In fact, it's estimated that Brigham Young University receives a lion's share of these funds. Cause goes on to say, there is no other purpose. Nobody is getting rich, close quote. So, <clears throat> let's talk about where all of this money is coming from and what the church is doing with it. This past March, the church reported spending more than $1 billion last year on humanitarian aid, eclipsing its 2021 total by more than $100 million. And this was amid the increased scrutiny of the church's finances. The church told the Post it does not, quote, provide information about specific transactions or financial decisions, close quote, although some church higher-ups have insisted and Sign Peak's rainy day reserves are intended to help pay for operations in poorer parts of the world and to see the global faith through economic downturns. And Sign Peak now heeds SEC rules and discloses its stock holdings in the U.S., which were valued at $46.2 billion in its latest report. These public findings do not, however, reflect the portfolio's total holdings. The church has misstated its assets on financial tax returns, according to the Wall Street Journal. In 2007, for example, Ensign Peak recorded $1 million for its total assets and in later years wrote over $1 million. The article stated that the real 2007 number was about $38 billion. Now, according to L. Todd Budge, who is the second counselor in the three-member 
presiding bishopric and former banking and private equity executive, he told the paper, and I quote, it was not an accurate answer. It wasn't meant to be an accurate answer. It was simply meant to communicate that we do not feel that we're obligated to fill in that box. Close quote. Now, that statement might sound suspicious to the layman's ear, but according to lawyers and tax experts, what Budge said is legal, it's truthful, and it's above board. And we will talk about why in a bit. Before we do that, though, let's go over a little bit of church history and its relationship to money. Lorenzo Snow, the church's president from 1889 to 1898, he had asked the Latter-day Saints to double down on paying their tithing, that is 10% of one's gross income, giving it to the church. At the time, the Latter-day Saints had only been in the Salt Lake Basin for 40-odd years, and they had arrived destitute and with malaria. They're starving. They had to fight uh, different groups of people because um, it was basically the Wild West, and they had moved at the time. Utah wasn't even part of the United States, so they had moved into Mexico to try to find somewhere to live. <clears throat> By the time Snow became president, the church was only beginning to thrive, attempting to build their community and to expand the church. And they were really struggling financially. Utah was only recognized as a state in 1896, so they had been on their own for a long time, these Mormon pioneers. The church's financial struggles continued well into the middle of the 20th century. And it was around this time that President N. Eldon Tanner, a counselor in the first presidency of the church from about 1963 to his death in 1982, he came in and helped restructure the way the church managed itself financially and ended up getting it on better footing. Tanner had a background in small businesses, teaching, and politics. And consequently, it was around this same time period that the church also stopped publicizing its finances to church members. So it's actually a relatively recent thing that, you, that the church has been managing pretty large financial resources. The people who hold these high callings in the church, while typically educated, very well-educated men, they're not necessarily well-versed in laws and in finances. So they do need advisors, and these positions open up and are refilled over time. Today, the church has uh, a rigorous audit culture and has become much more cautious in its spending 
ever since the 1960s. And since the 1980s, the church has been on sound financial footing. And its relatively recent windfalls, if you will, have enabled it to fulfill its goals of spreading the gospel and doing sacred redemptive work. And that is the work of the church. This becomes legalese in a second. And this is made manifest in things like building all those temples all over the world and also supporting its global missionary programs. So now let's talk about taxes and churches. People often think that a church is a 501c3, end of story. But the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a much more complex entity than just a charity. It actually consists of multiple entities. In fact, there are at least 17 entities of the church, and that's just in the United States. In terms of legal entities, this means that they are created under state, federal, or international laws. It is entirely legal for a church to own for-profit companies, which the LDS Church does. Those for-profit companies must, and they do, pay taxes, even under the umbrella of the church. It's just that the church itself is exempt from paying taxes. According to Aaron Miller, who teaches nonprofit management and ethics at the Romney Institute at Brigham Young University, and who is the co-author of the business, the business Ethics Field Guide, he said, the idea of the church just being one legal entity doesn't actually make sense when you understand all the reasons why a nonprofit, especially a global church, might have multiple different legal entities and how they serve different purposes and how they need to be treated differently for tax purposes. Now again, some of its business holdings don't qualify as charity, so they operate those holdings as a for business, I'm sorry, a for-profit business, and those funds get taxed just like any other for-profit. This raises the question, can a for-profit business be legally owned by a nonprofit? The answer is yes, as long as they're paying taxes from that entity, then it's fine. And this is one of the biggest misconceptions about nonprofit organizations generally and with churches specifically. Another common misconception is that nonprofits can't own things, nor can they make money, but they're fully entitled to own just about anything that anybody else can own. Having said that, there are a handful of limitations 
depending on the kind of nonprofit it is. On the very first day of his classes, Miller points out that if a nonprofit's not making a profit, it goes out of business. Nonprofits have expenses and they need revenue to cover those expenses. The revenue usually comes from donations or operations of some kind. Miller adds that 72% of nonprofit revenue in general across the United States comes from selling things, selling goods, selling services. And he gives the following examples. He says, look at your hospitals. They sell healthcare because a lot of them are treated as nonprofits in the tax code. But even if you take out healthcare, earnings are still somewhere around 45% of nonprofit revenue. And that revenue comes from selling things. Or you take your educational institutions, nonprofit universities sell tuition. And then he goes on to say concert halls sell tickets and museums have admission, etc. In summary, Nonprofit activity consists of selling things to people, and the tax code reflects that and treats it as a nonprofit, and even more specifically, sees it as what the tax code calls charity. Now, I hope I'm not losing anyone here. In fact, I'm hoping this actually clears up the misconception people have about nonprofits making money. They have to make money in order to run, in order to survive. Okay. So this term nonprofit, <clears throat> it's really a broad term. It's an umbrella term under which a church falls. So every organization that's a C3 in the tax code is a charity by definition. And charities are limited by congressional statute and treasury regulations about the kinds of things in which it can engage. Charity work includes churches. But now here's the rub. Listen to this. Listen. And this is according to tax laws and tax codes. A church does not have to do good. It does not have to do good. A church can just act like a church as somewhere where one can go to worship. Now, from ethical and spiritual standpoints, we insist that churches should be helping the poor and the needy just as other charities do and just when we're talking about Christian churches, isn't that what Jesus Christ said that we should be doing? Feed the poor, feed the needy, help the sick. Okay, so this becomes a really emotional issue. It's not just a legal one. But again, legally, a church does not have to do good. Now, we will talk about this in the context of the LDS church in a moment to see what they are and what they are not doing with the money. I just wanted to clarify the law that 
A church does not have to do good. It can just be a church. So back to the umbrella term of nonprofit for a moment. Nonprofits are unique because they're one of the rare legal entities that cannot be owned. A nonprofit exists but cannot be owned by anybody in order to qualify for tax-exempt tax status. Now, nobody owns the church, at least not in a legal sense. Now, in a spiritual sense, the Latter-day Saints would say that Jesus owns the church. But in the legal sense, no one owns the church. And because there are no owners, there's um, no owner or shareholder to whom to distribute profits, and therefore there, was, there is no one to tax. Okay, I'm going to say that again. If you have an entity that does not have owners, and there's no owners or shareholders to whom to distribute profits, then there is no one to tax. Miller goes on to say that being a church is the best deal you can get under federal tax law, and it's uh, the best for a lot of reasons. So here's one. You automatically qualify for a really generous category called public charity status. That comes with fewer restrictions on the kinds of things you do, and less scrutiny from the IRS. And as a church, you get the added benefit of never having to file a tax return. If you have something called unrelated business income, you have to file a form called a 990T, and that's just a minor detail. Now, having said that, most charities have to file a form called a 990. And if you're a foundation, you have to file a 990PF. So that might sound a little confusing, um, especially if you do your own taxes and you get confused on those. So let's compare the individual 1040 that we all fill out, okay? Let's compare our 1040 to a church's 990. Our 1040s are private. A taxpayer has no obligation to disclose their tax returns to the public. However, charities do, except for churches. You can go and look up the 990 for any charity that exists except for churches. And what does a 990 disclose? Finances, of course, just like our 1040s. Now I bring this up because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been so opaque about its financial holdings. Again, this looks really suspicious to the layman. But it's actually completely normal behavior that would not and does not raise any red flags to an auditor, to a lawyer, or to other financial experts. 
You might wonder why the government gives churches so much autonomy under the tax codes. The laws have been, really they've been this way since the beginning of the tax code. So when the federal income tax code was started in 1913, all the way up through today, today, churches have been able to exist under this special status without having to report their finances to the public or to the government. Now, I think we can all agree that this privilege can incentivize bad behavior. So, did the church behave badly? We will try to answer that right now. Because of how the laws work for churches, the allegations against the LDS church appear to stem from Nielsen's misunderstanding of tax law. For unknown reasons, he apparently did not hire a lawyer, nor did he hire a tax expert to help him write his report that was submitted to the IRS and then to Congress. So again, this is what the law states and this is what the church followed. The federal tax code does not have a minimum disbursement requirement for what are called public charities, a category of 501c3 tax-exempt organizations. Churches are public charities by default, and the LDS Church never had to spend a minimum X amount of dollars to any charitable work. So one could say that it could just sit on $100 billion or $150 billion legally. However, the church actually did spend money. It just didn't disclose exact figures because it didn't have to. And there's reasons why a church would want to keep that secret. And yes, there's illegal reasons why they'd want to keep that secret, but there's also legal and ethical reasons why they'd want to keep that secret. And we'll talk about that in a second. There is a requirement that all 501c3 entities carry out charitable activities that are, in quote, commensurate in scope with their resources. This ostensibly means that a charity cannot merely accumulate assets and remain a charity. And this is probably where Nielsen was coming from. This is probably why he believes the church broke the law because they were accumulating wealth. And you cannot merely accumulate wealth. There's gotta be a reason for that money. The law does not set a fixed threshold for this though. And the IRS instead takes it on a case by case basis, applying what's called the commensurate test, the commensurate test, sorry, commensurate test. It applies it rarely, very rarely. But even by Nielsen's own admission, the church is in fact spending around $6 billion a year on its tax-exempt activities. So, the church is not 
really hoarding money per se. Ensign Peaks Advisors is exempt as a separate 501c3 supporting organization, uh, capital S in supporting, capital O in organization. Notably, Nielsen also disputes this status, but without directly addressing how Ensign Peak fails to meet the legal definition. He instead focuses on the spirit of the status. As a supporting organization, Ensign Peak is deemed an independent nonprofit. Nielsen claims that this requires Ensign Peak to pass the commensurate test all on its own and not as a part of the larger whole of the church. But according to the IRS's own definition, Ensign Peak is also what they call an integrated auxiliary managed by the church, a legal treatment that combines their activities in certain ways. And this is the critical detail that Nielsen's report only briefly mentions, but either glosses over or he seems to misunderstand it, okay, or I don't know, somehow missed it. Peter J. Riley, a non-Latter-day Saint and a CPA and a tax specialist, observed in Forbes that Ensign is not a private foundation. It is an integrated auxiliary of a church, and there is nothing in the tax law that prevents churches from accumulating wealth. Riley reached out to Paul Streckfuss, another tax expert, who runs a trusted publication focusing on tax-exempt organizations. He too concluded that, I quote, the matter does not merit IRS attention, close quote. Another thing that Nielsen appears to be concerned about is the fact that the church is investing $1 billion a year in an endowment fund and not distributing it or the interest earned, but is building a reserved endowment illegal or ethically wrong. Maintaining large financial reserves is actually a common and encouraged practice among nonprofits and governments. Miller points out two similarly large organizations that show how the IRS might consider the case. Both the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Harvard University operate with endowments of around $50 billion, which is roughly 10 times their annual budget. The IRS has not considered either one to be in violation of the commensurate test. If Nielsen's numbers are correct, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is maintaining an endowment equal to about 16 times its annual budget, a ratio that is within typical practices of endowed 501c3s. Many private foundations annually distribute a minimum of 5% of their total assets, making endowments equal to 20 times an annual budget very common. So this practice of keeping a sizable financial reserve is not likely to violate the commensurate test. 
Under the federal tax code, any religious purpose is a charitable one by definition, including the so-called purpose of saving against troubled times preceding the second coming of Jesus Christ. The church has many other religious reasons to have an endowment fund and has publicly stated that it saves and makes prudent investments to uphold spiritual teachings. Such a fund might be built to prepare for heavy growth in third world countries, especially as membership of this church is trending toward the global south and slowing down in places like the United States. They keep such a fund to help, excuse me, I need a little more light in my room. So I'm gonna turn around and um, shed a little more light on my situation here. Thank you. So where was I? Yeah, so the church is growing in the global south and kind of slowing down here in the United States. And as we know, in the global south, there's a lot of poor countries and the church wants to be there to help them. Uh, the church also keeps a fund to help as it often does after natural disasters that could come with greater frequency due to climate change conditions. I mean, I live in a big city that is not known. It's known for having tornadoes kind of skirt around it, but it's not known for tornadoes going right through it. Well, Tornadoes are now going right through our city. Anyway, <clears throat> rainy day funds are also typically built to prepare for possible future economic downturns. Recently, some state... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, where was I? Wait, where's my notes? Ah, here we go. Some state governments have been building sizable rainy day funds that together now total more than $70 billion dollars. Some have wondered if such funds are adequate in the event of another downturn or climate conditions or other circumstances. And thinking about it that way, the church's $100 billion might come in handy. And not just for members of the church, the church will also help those who are non-members of the church and not require them to join the church. They will just help them. There are even more reasons that the church might want to hold large reserves. Now, and this is something that many of you might even be thinking yourselves. So given that a lot of the major party politicians and others like Nielsen, the whistleblower, have been stating with greater frequency that they would like to see the church and other religions lose tax-exempt status. This would be yet another reason why such institutions might want large reserves. Now, specifically this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saint, the Mormon Church, having had its proper property confiscated in the 19th century in Missouri and then in Utah. The church also has a historical rationale for building especially large reserves. 
and another ethical question arose. Were tithing funds, that is donations made by lay members of the church, used in Ensign Peak for business investments? This is not likely, even though how they spend the money remains opaque. It's not likely. So tithing, the 10% that a church member gives to the church, that makes up about $7 billion out of that $100 billion or so pot. Though not entirely promised, the church does make every attempt to give an individual's money to whatever fund the, the individual originally donated it to. For example, the humanitarian fund. Let's say there was a, an earthquake somewhere and I want to give $50 toward the earthquake um, re, uh, or, you know, restoration. So the church does everything it can to give that specific 50 bucks to that uh, charity. However, it might use five bucks of it toward, you know, getting ink for the copier at the local church or, you know, to help build the temple. So the, that's what I'm talking about with tithing is those who pay tithing, they know that the church will do everything it can to honor their request. But it, it tells you right up front, maybe not. And tithe pay their, payers are mostly okay with this. Mostly. Okay. So, um... I'm sorry, I lost my train. Um, tithe payers, um, or the tithing funds, if you will, they're used for the upkeep of local meeting houses and chapels. That's the main thing tithing goes to because that's very, um, it's, it's so logical. You're going not only every Sunday, but there's activities during the week. And these chapels are not just chapels, but they're multi-purpose buildings. So there's classrooms in there, there's offices. There's baptismal font, there's a gym, there's a stage where you can put on plays. Um, there's a kitchen, you can go cook in the kitchen at a Mormon church. There's a lot of different uses for um, the Mormon churches that you might find in your neighborhood, and that all costs money, and that's where the tithing really goes, okay? Anyway, what I do want to say, and and I do want to say this about tithe payers in the Latter-day Saint Church. A lot of them have a saying that goes something like this. If the prophet of the church asked me to stand in front of the temple and burn a $100 bill, I would do it. Now, while this declaration sounds rhetorical and sentimental, what this conveys is that tithing and other donations are acts of faith. The believer is grateful to God for all that was given to that person. And so he or she intends to give a little bit back. And after they give it back, it doesn't matter to that person how it's used. It was the giving of it that mattered. It was that sacrifice on the altar, if you will. So that's the Mormon tithe payer. But now, Questions still remain for the future. 
Should a church be able to legally hold $100 billion that could otherwise all be spent on helping those in need and remain tax exempt? Should a church have the freedom to avoid transparency in its finances? And should a church, especially a wealthy one like this one, pay taxes like the rest of us? Distributing a huge amount like $100 billion in a way that has a reliable, positive impact would be very hard to do. It would be very hard to manage and organize. And it would require a kind of effort far beyond what we might realize. So the Gates Foundation in 2018 spent about $1 billion on operations in order to give away $3.7 billion. So that was like a third, almost, of just, just running it cost about a third of what they wanted to give away. They are widely regarded as effective stewards of their assets, this Gates Foundation, and they are having a global impact. That isn't to say, that is not to say, that the church shouldn't do more than it already does, but to do it well would probably require increasing expenses for its staff and operations by maybe one to two billion dollars per year, which by Nielsen's numbers would be about 30 percent uh, budget increase. The church is spending around, and even Nielsen agrees with this, the church is spending around six billion dollars on its total charitable, educational, and ecclesiastical efforts annually expanding its efforts and spending humanitarian otherwise isn't a change that could happen immediately but would take years of cultivating expertise and relationships it appears that over the past several decades that's precisely what the church has been doing steadily increasing its capacity for non-denominational humanitarian giving in addition to its own internal church welfare and other philanthropic efforts. Having a large endowment is relatively new to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints after over a century of financial strain. Undoubtedly, the church has lessons to learn in financial management, ergo that five million dollars they had to pay, but expecting, expecting an immediate, large, and effective grant-making engine is probably unreasonable. There's, I won't go over them all, but there's a lot of other legal considerations to take as to why the church would want to be um, opaque, if you will, about its money. Um, here's one. Many organizations believe that if you're known to have money, you are prone to become subject to frivolous lawsuits or solicitations of bribes by bad actors. There are even fears that are not unfounded that Mormon missionaries in foreign countries could be kidnapped, kidnapped for ransom if church finances are detailed. But now that this information has been leaked, that Pandora's box is open. 
but that still doesn't mean the church would want to assist in publishing its holdings to exacerbate such risks or provide exact figures that could create a certain kind of exposure. Um, and here is the $150 billion question. Are those who control these assets getting wealthy from them? So here's the answer in part. Part-time volunteer church leaders are not paid to be volunteer church leaders. Full-time church leaders are given an annual stipend that is frequently much less than what they were earning prior to their ministry when they had their career. And it is speculated that some or many of the wealthier full-time leaders actually donate much, if not all, of their money back into the church. The lack of transparency, whatever its motivation, does not appear to be driven by greed. And I think with all the audits that it gets, both internal and external, something would have turned up and it would have been splashed all over the papers. Now, um, there's another complaint against the church when it comes to poor people paying tithing or like the widow's mite that was praised by Jesus Christ. If a church doesn't need their gift, why is it taking it? So it's very common that low-income people give what they can in tithing, but what happens in return, and I cannot promise that this happens in every city everywhere, but it is common that they can then receive through a local leader rent money uh, utility bills paid or food ass assistance and all of these things are well in excess of the tithing that they paid and this happens every day everywhere around the world is somebody who's hit financial hard times can get help from the church um, again there's probably people listening saying well this bishop you know didn't turn down this lady who was pregnant and and that's true, it does depend on the local leader, but the general um, practice, if you will, is that if somebody's down and out, they can go and talk to their local bishop and get assistance, financial assistance. Again, tithing is a religious principle viewed as an act of faith and sacrifice to God which is why a poor person would want to pay tithing. It has its principles based in ancient, in ancient biblical practice. Also, um, on the psychiatric side of things, um, research shows that charitable giving, including religious giving, increases the help and happiness, health and happiness of the giver. While some members of the church do wonder about having to having to tithe, the vast majority of Latter-day Saints primarily tithe as a personal sacrifice to worship God and to offer thanks for blessings that they receive. And it's unlikely that the majority of them feel misled because the primary purpose was fulfilled the moment they donated, as detailed by that burning of the hundred bucks metaphor. Having said this, 
church members constantly see the results of their tithing in the form of new temples um, and chapels being built um, and maintained, budgets allocated for local congregations around the world, personal trials, large-scale disaster relief efforts in which they personally participate. So as far as the Latter-day Saints are concerned, the lack of fiscal transparency is overwhelmed by the rest of the evidence around them. Now, um, gosh, there's so much more to say, but we're running out of time. Um, so I just want to say that in the final analysis, the $100 billion or $150 billion, it's not just sitting around. It's being used um, for their for-profit businesses and markets, which in turn fuel the economy. And it's being used also for charitable uh, works, which it does not have to do, but we do expect that of a church. And the church wants to do it. Um, that's been apparent to me all my life because I've been a member of this church, um, even though I have issues with it myself. Um, I have seen the church help many people in many ways. But again, we have to remember that such an abundance is a relatively recent phenomena for the church. And time will tell how its leaders budget church funds in the years ahead and what, what is called upon for them to do so. And in the final analysis, there presently are no scandals to date involving fraud or personal enrichment by church leaders. We just have strong concerns about their frugality and their transparency. And I think that's, that's a fair assessment. It is now time for bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. Here is a poem called Your Portrait. It was written by Eliza R. Snow, who was an early Mormon pioneer and a poet, and actually one of Joseph Smith's 33 or so wives. Sir, you've left us your portrait, that product of art, a small specimen neatly designed, but tis only a picture for where is the heart? And oh, wear that rich jewel, the mind. It is only a picture, for where is the speech, that most noble conductor of thought, with which thou art gifted the nations to teach, and by which we desire to be taught? Sir, we look at your portrait and see it enclosed in its frame like a prisoner bound and regret its original, thus is exposed to the malice of men that surround. Oh, how strange in this boasted Republican land where all claim to be happy and free, that a prophet of God is forbidden to stand and is forced like a culprit to flee. Tis a sad restitution, but all things must come it was thus with the prophets of old. But when you are absent and driven from your home, here's your portrait, 
your friends may behold. Until next week, arrivederci.